Hi, it's Julie Bindle here. Happy New Year. And for the beginning of 2023, I have a major treat for you. In an interview with the American-British journalist, Hadley Freeman, who left The Guardian newspaper after 22 years and has just begun as a columnist and an interviewer at the Sunday Times. I can enjoy a movie that doesn't adhere to my ideology. I, you know, I remember seeing Pretty Woman when that first came out. I went to the cinema, I was 12. And at the time I thought, this is a weird movie. Like this guy just bought her. But at the same time, it's undeniably an enjoyable, a weirdly enjoyable movie, just because Julia Roberts is so fabulous in it and she's so charismatic. She began life as a fashion journalist. She became, amongst other things, a feminist icon. She's a best-selling author. Her last book was House of Glass, about her grandmother's life. And her forthcoming book, which we'll see in April 2023, is Good Girls, a story and study of anorexia. And I can't wait to read it. Here's Hadley. I'm honoured, Julie, the great Julie Bindor, of course. (laughs) Shucks, fancy you saying that to me. I have been a huge fan of your writing and and had the absolute honour of meeting you back in, I think, you didn't meet me and I didn't really meet you, but I was in a room with you back in 2010 where we were talking about how to write comment in a way that was accessible and even funny. And I remember thinking, who is that broad? She's fabulous. <laughs> so, and then since then, of course, um, I'm delighted to say we've become friends. So, Hadley, um, what first thing I want to talk to you about is 1980s films. <laughs> My specialty subject. Because <laughs> something occurred to me when I read a piece of yours, and I don't remember when it was, but it wasn't that long ago, where... You were talking about Dirty Dancing, and I think that came out in 1987, is that right? Something like that, yes. I used to know this off the top of my head. I'm sure it's 1987, yeah. So you were were 10, and I was 25, and I saw it when it came out because it was one of the first films I went to see with my partner, Harriet, who you know, and she probably had to be dragged along kicking (laughs) And I remember thinking oh my God, this actually might be a feminist film. And trust me, I don't go to the cinema to think about representation and queer semiotics and the like, but tell me what your thoughts were as a 10-year-old and then when you revisited as a teenager. Well, my initial thought was, I can't believe my mum has allowed me to see this because there are people literally having sex in it. Um, And the main thing I really loved about Dirty Dancing when I first saw it was that Jennifer Grey, the main girl in it called Baby, um, looked kind of like me because she's Jewish and it's about a Jewish family. And there weren't many movies I saw, even growing up in New York, um, that had like a Jewish girl as the main girl, the hot girl in it, and about Jewish families that I recognize. This is a Jewish family going to a Jewish holiday camp in the Catskills. That's what it's about. Um, and it, I didn't really understand what was happening with the abortion plot, which is involves a staff member called Penny who has to go get an illegal abortion. Um, then when I went back to see it as a teenager, I, I thought, wow, this is weirdly brutal because there's this whole discussion about how she had to be on a table with a dirty knife and she was screaming when the doctor was hurting her and she might not be able to have children later. And that kind of stuck in my head. And then when I saw it again in my 20s, I thought 
oh, wow, this is why this movie has really stuck with me and with other people, because it's a fun movie, but it's got so much more going on in it. There's like a real brain going on in this movie, the person who wrote it. And the woman who wrote it is this kind of amazing woman called Eleanor Bergstein, who I've become friends with, who wrote it specifically in the 80s to warn women not to take abortion for granted. So Dirty Dancing is set in the 50s, you know, abortion's still illegal then, and she felt that this kind of feminist backlash that obviously Susan Faludi was writing about at the time um, would put legalized abortion under risk in America and how prescient Eleanor was. And she thought the only way I can get this message in a movie is to smuggle it in a kind of junkie teen movie and to have a movie with loads of dancing and soundtrack and romance. And I'll just put this message in. So a Trojan horse of feminism. Totally, totally. And she's very blatant about it. She she gave an interview about it um, first at an event for Planned Parenthood, I think in about 2012. And then I called her up when I wrote a book about 80s movies and we talked about it, about it a lot. That was in 2014. Like she, she very much says, you know, this was a movie that I wanted to show what, um, a country without legal abortion looks like for women. See, that that is incredible because I remember reading your article and being jolted, remembering a line in it that you mentioned in your piece, which is the character saying that she was carrying a watermelon. Mm. Now, that really hit me because Shula Miss Firestone, the great late second wave, early second wave feminist, who died a while back and I wrote her obituary. And I was reminded at that time that Shulamith said that she didn't want kids. She didn't want to have babies because she said a friend had said it was like shitting a watermelon. (laughs) And the kind of watermelons seem to be significant in some way. But also what struck me when you you spoke about this kind of Trojan horse of feminism is the, the opposite, which is when I was a a young teenager and I don't remember how old but I was not 16 I went to see Saturday Night Fever Mm. so I was a great um avid cinema goer and that was my thing film always always it still is and I absolutely was enthralled by Saturday Night Fever and I couldn't even tell you why I mean it's just a brilliantly constructed film great acting great set great music great dancing which I tried to emulate and failed and then I watched it as a young feminist. Oh, my God, the misogyny. Yeah. So it's like the opposite. So I revisited it. And there were hideous rape references. There was cruelty towards the girls in a way that could only be massively misogynistic. There were sexual threats. And I hated that film so much. And it kind of was taken away from me. But then I thought, no, I must actually be a feminist to now be able to revisit something and see it through a different lens. Mm, mm, mm. And also, I feel in Saturday Night Fever, because they make the misogyny so blatant and John Travolta is so horrible to the nice girl who he keeps sleeping with, um, uh, that the filmmakers are sort of aware of it. They're not as condemnatory of him as they might be now it wouldn't be but they're certainly showing it like he is horrible and you know the look on the girl's face when he shags her in the car and and leaves her basically and is so horrible to her and keeps ditching her for the snooty kind of the more aloof girl the more upper class girl like you do feel her pain she is a sympathetic figure but the movie does hold him up as kind of like you know the young shark the sexy guy around town but in no way does it hide what he is like. So it's a weird movie. It's a very weird movie. 
It, it is. And of course, it was in the 1970s, so outside of your kind of the best movies of all time. <laughs> but it was really clear to me, watching it again, that, you know, sometimes women say, oh, my God, I was born a feminist. Oh, I've been a feminist all my life. No, I was a feminist as a child. I definitely wasn't. Because when I was watching that, all of these references escaped me. Of course, they would. Yeah. And and just some of the things made me feel uncomfortable. I mean, when he was fucking her in the car and talking about her as a chick that he yeah. was fucking, basically. And and then after that, I think my eyes were open and I remember thinking, but I'll never be able to enjoy a film again. But of course, that isn't the case because there are so many brilliant films exactly like Dirty Dancing, where the feminism is so explicit if you know what you're actually looking for. And even if you don't, I mean, some of those old film noir, some of the old 1940s, 50s, Betty Davis type films, where there's terrible tragedy at the end, or even Thelma and Louise, the more recent mm. ones in the 90s. Mm in the 90s, where there's an awful tragedy. Of course, the woman dies, but all the women die. The women are killed by men. But throughout, there's been such a resistance to patriarchy that that's the takeaway. Yeah, yeah. And also, I can enjoy a movie that doesn't adhere to my ideology. I, You know, I remember seeing Pretty Woman when that first came out. I went to the cinema, I was 12. And at the time, I thought, this is a weird movie. Like, this guy just bought her. I don't understand. I couldn't. But at the same time, it's undeniably an enjoyable a weirdly enjoyable movie just because Julia Roberts is so fabulous in it and she's so charismatic and I love Hector Elizondo the actor who plays the kind of concierge of the hotel and Laura Santa Monica who's her um, friend who's her prostitute friend like it's a terrible movie ideologically like it's insane this film ever got made but I do find myself referencing it weirdly often. Um, I hear you. No, and two, two things about Pretty Woman is once back in the very early 2000s, I went to a sixth form school in uh, Moscow in Russia to do some work with the Council of Europe about sexual exploitation. And it was supposed to be looking at the risks of, uh, of trafficking into prostitution for young people, because it was rife, of course, at the time, not long after the Balkan War and the Kosovo War. And I asked some of the girls what they wanted to do with their lives post-school. And about 70% of them said they wanted to be prostitutes. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it was because of <laughs> Pretty Woman, I'm telling you. Oh, and my God. It really was because of Pretty Woman. It's so tragic. Oh, my Lord. Do they really think that the men who buy prostitutes, who like what I, what I call rape prostitutes, um, are like and look like and behave like Richard Gere in that film? Like, who do they think these men are? It, it is such a morally bankrupt movie that you, it, you can't help but kind of like gasp at it. And yet I will always watch the shopping scene. I fully admit yeah. to that. Uh, but everything about it is so offensive. Actually, weirdly, I wrote quite a bit about Pretty Woman in my next book, which is coming out in April, and just about how it totally exemplifies the ideal of femininity and that the ideal of femininity is a woman who has no agency. Uh, so, you know, she, what does she order? Whatever he orders for her. What does she wear? Whatever he picks out for her. You know, w when does she have sex? When he pays for it. Like everything about it. I mean, she's basically just a fembot in it. It's so fascinating this movie but just from julia roberts sheer charisma you kind of get you kind of can you know sort of almost it can be almost obscured um but as a movie it's it's so fascinatingly terrible it really is but i'll tell you that i have a question because i want to talk about your book and it's a perfect segue into it but one question i have about pretty woman 
and I have this for the world, is it was a hugely successful film, right? It brought in billions of dollars. It has been seen in so many countries around the world. I was in a village in India where barely anyone has a TV a few years back and they've been watching Pretty Woman. (laughs) Why has there never been a sequel? Because that's what you do with massively successful. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Can I can I suggest something? <laughs> because what would the sequel be? She's a prostitute. What's he going to do? He's going to have kids with her. <laughs> right? He's going to have kids with her, which he'll then take off her through the family courts. One day he'll call her a whore in an argument. There is no happy ending for Julia Roberts' character. I feel like also that at a certain point, everyone involved realized how terrible this movie was, probably after it came out. Um, but the weird thing about Pretty Woman, I find, is that it came out at almost, I think, exactly the same year as Thelma and Louise. And yet it's Pretty Woman that's on TV all the time. It's Pretty right. Woman that's had the way longer cultural tale. I mean, Thelma and Louise, people still kind of know it, but I would bet that young, you know, young women today, 20-somethings, maybe even teenagers, definitely don't watch it. They will all have seen Pretty Woman. Um, it's yes. just one of those movies, like Breakfast Club or something, that's just in the ether. It's part of the pop lexicon. Thelma and Louise, yes, everyone knows they die at the end, but the message right. of it is no one remembers. No one remembers that they're f- like, well, that Gina Davis's character is fleeing an abusive husband. They don't know that, uh, you know, that Susan Sarandon kills a man who tries to rape her. Like, n- none of that is remembered. But everyone remembers the shopping scene in Pretty Woman. Everybody remembers they go to the polo. And they remember that at the end, Richard Gere climbs up the fire escape to get her. Um, and that, I think, is a really interesting thing because the 90s had a lot of great movies for great women. And those two movies actually kind of exemplify or great roles for great women. I mean, that was undeniably a great role for Julia Roberts. It made her career. But, you know, the Gina Davis, Susan Sarandon roles like that, they have not been as nowhere near as seminal as Vivian the prostitute was for Julia Roberts. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we're feminists. We can make our own minds up about that. And what we say obviously goes because we're right. We know we are. Exactly. But, you know, I mean, my, my fun at, at parties or you know, in any kind of social setting or even just walking along the street is to think about a famous scene in Godfathers 1, 2 or 3 and see how closely I can recite it. So <laughs> moving, moving on, I want to talk about Good Girls, the story and study of anorexia, your book that's coming out in April, that we're all really excited about. So tell us everything that you can about it, please. So it is, I mean, despite me always whinging to my friends like, bloody hell, why don't these celebrities ever stop going on about their mental fucking health? I have written a book about my mental fucking health. Um, so I I was in hospital for about three years as a teenager with anorexia. And I really didn't want to write like a straight memoir of that. Um, I wanted to look at anorexia sort of more broadly, but at the same time, I understand that people need a storyline. So it is this, it, it, the starting point is basically when I first got ill, when I was just turned 14 to when I fully, in my opinion, recovered, which is when I was about 40. Um, And it's, you know, describes what triggered me, looking back the things that led up to it, because the trigger is never actually the cause. Um, Things that led up to it for me, which are not what everyone always says. It has nothing to do with fashion models and magazines and celebrities. It's, you know, little things that how girls are told how to behave. I mean, this is the truth about anorexia um, is that 
it's a fear of womanhood. Like, this is something that no one ever seems to understand. Anorexia comes on in adolescence, invariably, always. And it's, I think, um, girls who have a fear of becoming women because either their fear of being sexualized, fear of leaving their mother, fear of becoming their mother, fear of what being a woman means, a desire to stay a child. Um, and there can be lots of things that lead to that. There can there can be terribly traumatic events in the past, but most commonly anorexia is not caused by trauma. It is caused by an accretion of small, terrible, normal, terrible things. So being told little girls don't behave like that, you know, if, if a little girl's caught masturbating or something like that, or being told how little girls are supposed to behave. Um, and not eating is an expression of anxiety, um, and it's kind of like an OCD, a way of self-soothing. It has something to do with the culture in that the culture offers a way to express it, but it is not simply about wanting to be thin like a fashion model. I mean, anorexics are mentally ill, but they are not stupid. They understand that Kate Moss eats more than an apple a day. You know, they are not, you know, they, um, they are trying to look ill because they want people to know that they are unhappy, is the truth. And so, so do you have a, a huge kind of build up to it did, did you were you approached did you go to a publisher and say you want to do something about this and did they try to kind of derail the project in any way kind of make it more bubblegum or um no so it's the publisher I had for my last book also which was about my grandmother so they kind of know the score with me I think probably um all publisher anyone who works in publishing would like something that's just a straight memoir um that seems to be the kind of the flavor these days but I really wanted to do a kind of a bigger thing and look at how treatment has changed um, and also look at issues relating to anorexia. For example, is it a female form of autism, which has been a theory that's been around since the 80s and is kind of growing in credibility now. So, for example, the last hospital where I was an inpatient is um, autism accredited. So the ward is like has bland colors. You can order the autism friendly menu, which is all like bland food, because the theory is that autism tests were designed for little boys. Um, and girls are much better at mimicking social cues so they can mask their autism for longer. And then when they hit adolescence and social cues become more complicated because hormones and things are a bit more sort of subtextual at school in terms of relations between the girls, they then kind of explode internally and they try to control the one thing they can, which is their body. Um, other doctors are a bit more skeptical of that theory and they say that the symptoms of starvation can also seem like the symptoms of autism, i.e. you're cutting yourself off from the world, you're hiding, you have a lack of empathy. So it's it, that's a really interesting issue that I looked at. Um, other things um, relating to uh, anorexia, for example, uh, you know, how much the, bi the biology plays a part. So some doctors think that some people are biologically prone to anorexia because of certain metabolic factors, certain brain chemistry factors. Um, is, it is it a heritable trait? For example, can you inherit it from your mother? Um, which is something I was interested in because my mother was anorexic. Um, and it's very hard to separate I think, out heritable traits, i.e. a physical thing that you inherit and learned behavior. Um, that's a very complicated sort of gray area. Um, and then also, Julie, you're my favorite subject, gender and what role gender plays in it, gender stereotypes, and also, you know, whether the disproportionate number of teenage girls who are, you know, now identifying as boys, whether this is a new form of anorexia, because it too is a way of avoiding womanhood. Um, so I interviewed a lot of ex-doctors uh, who were formerly at the Tavistock and a lot of child psychologists. 
And I suspect that chapter might get a certain amount of attention. But then also I kind of think, well, maybe not, because it's not like I haven't talked about this subject before. So, is I mean, I don't think it's going to be quite as explosive as perhaps some people are are anticipating. Well, well and also it, it makes absolute sense. I first became really educated about anorexia to an extent when I met Emma Humphreys, who this was back in the early 1990s. She was a child when she killed her vicious pimp. Mm-hmm. And she was 16, 17 when she was convicted of his murder. She had had a lifetime of abuse and depression. She was a runaway. She'd been prostituted from 13 years old. I mean, her life was pretty much up there in the extreme grimness scale. And, and then Emma served some years, 10 years in prison before her campaign alongside those of us that helped her was successful and she overturned her murder conviction. Now, when she was in prison, she was a reasonably healthy weight. She was on the skinny side, but there was nothing concerning and she ate. And actually she said it was the first time that she ever felt safe in her life when she was in prison, despite the fact that it was terrible and she was desperate to get out. So when she came out and she was out for three years before she died of an accidental overdose, but when she was out, she immediately stopped eating and she was anorexic. I mean, she had a diagnosis of anorexia. It was obvious to those that we asked if they could speak with Emma, who were pretty much expert in this, including women who've been through anorexia, that she was anorexic. And she said two things about why she wouldn't eat. It wasn't because she wanted to, look in the mirror and think that she was thinner than she'd imagined. All of those myths that you've just addressed and I know will address in your book, but she wanted to be in control because she hadn't been in control. She'd been in prison where you couldn't even put a light switch on or off, Mm. lock your own door. So it gave her a sense of control. And the other thing was that she wanted to, for men to know that she was deeply unattractive and that she might even smell of vomit, and that she was five and a half stone and close to death, and maybe they wouldn't want to fuck her. Mm. And it was that level of control, and every and I, I learned from that that her experience was quite extreme, but that it wasn't about the myth that we're fed about wanting to be a skinny as a supermodel because you really think you're fat. Yeah, it's sort of amazing to me how um, people take this mental illness that is, you know, disproportionately um, suffered by women and make it a kind of vain, shallow, superficial thing. I think probably one of the more interesting cases of it that I've ever seen is, I can't remember her name, I'm sure you will, Julie, um, Bill Wyman's child bride. Do you remember her in the 80s? Mandy something? Mandy, and he married her. He met her when she was 13 and married her when she was 15 because of the state law allowed that to happen. And she became very anorexic. And you sort of look at that and think, wow, I want (laughs) to... Wonder what role here being sexualized from such a young age would play in a woman starving herself. I wonder what role a young girl having to be basically the money earner of her family, which is kind of what she was. Uh, I, I believe her mother was, I mean, the role of her mom in that relationship was very grim, if I remember correctly. She was exploitative. She pretty much sold her daughter in, in some ways. And then she herself married Bill Wyman's son. I mean, the whole story was so disgusting. And you look at that, you think that is a young woman. I'm not diagnosing this poor, this woman from afar, but you just think 
does is no one seeing this as like a rejection of sexuality and like a fear of sexuality and a desire just to be a child again because that's what this is about it's not about her wanting to look pretty in pictures like she is really it's like what you know they say in history of art no they meet tangeri like don't touch me like that is the message anorexics give is like don't touch me um and it's an absolute rejection of male sexuality um, and a, a rejection of their sexuality because they fear it. But when you have someone who's been exploited like that and held up as a sex object since they were a child, it's kind of understandable why they would want to starve themselves down to childlike state again. Isn't it just? And then, you know, the whole issue about your sexed body and gender. I wrote a piece the other day about Blackpool and about mm-hmm. how the highest number of referrals of girls to the JIDS clinic, to the Tavistock gender identity um clinic uh, is higher than anywhere else in the country, higher than Brighton or Westminster or any of the boroughs you would expect or towns or cities you would expect. And it makes absolute sense. Blackpool is the poorest town in England. It has three times the number of children in care, most of whom are girls, than anywhere else. Child suicides are off the scale, sexual exploitation and the number of sex offenders living in Blackpool off the scale and poverty, of course, which aggravates everything. And I've been contacted by a few parents and and one young woman herself since it was published, which was only a day ago. This young woman said that she was desperate to escape womanhood, did actually start on puberty blockers when she was 14 years old, wanted to not have her period start and starved herself and thought that actually if she stopped eating, this would somehow de-sex her body. That wasn't the language she used, Mm -hmm. but it's certainly the way that it came across to me. And that being a boy is way preferable when you can escape in your mind the sexual abuse that we get as girls and women because we're girls and women. Yeah, yeah. The whole point of not wanting to be a woman. I mean, that's because people, there's this weird, the weird thing with gender ideology is the idea that there are certain person, that the whatever biological sex you are, that comes with a personality type and a wardrobe and what what is expected of you. I mean, the biological sex is just literally what your body is. So I first interviewed Jill Soloway for the first series of Transparent and she was Jill then married to her husband um, and she was really interesting and I thought the first series was kind of amazing and I loved the Jewiness of it and you know I, I loved Jeffrey Tambor as an actor and I thought he was great in it and then I went back and interviewed her for I believe the second series and at this point she was now non-binary um, uh, transitioning to a boy uh, her I mean, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say her sister was also transitioning to a boy. Their father had transitioned. That's what the show is about. And Jill and I got into this really big (laughs) argument in her house because she was saying, I just think of myself as a boy because like I've never been feminine. Like I like to wear little shorts and T-shirts and just kind of be really boyish. And I said to her, I just don't understand how as a feminist, which you are, um, you can say being a woman means being feminine. Like, shouldn't you broaden the umbrella of what being a woman means? Like, and also her idea was, she was like a middle-aged woman like me. She didn't want to be a man. She wanted to be a boy. And like her, her, like the whole thing was so weird to me. And when you look at photos of, she's now known as Joey, 
Joey now. And, like, we had a long discussion. Like, it went on for, like, three hours, and then we had this huge, long email that went back for, like, three weeks. Like, I was... It wasn't like I was slamming her. I was saying, explain this to me. And she just kind of really couldn't without lots of very academic language. And when you see photos of Joey Soloway now, like, they're dressed like a kind of 1950s cartoon of, like, Leave it to Beaver. It's, like, it's so weird. It's, like, a little cap, a T-shirt, and shorts. And there's something in that I find really puzzling. But I also think you could do that as a woman. Like, you don't need to say you're a different sex. If you want to dress like a 10-year-old kid... You can do that as a woman. That is really horrific. And I didn't know that about Soloway. I really didn't because I also loved series one of Transparent. I thought that the characterization was brilliant. The yuckiness of some of the kind of interactions between people. Josh, who is utterly grotesque, but also quite compelling. And the the dysfunction and the anxiety of the mother. And I mean, all of it was just... So well done. And then she, then Soloway became really kind of entrenched in queer ideology. And I feel like that is really reflected, that became really reflected on the show. There was that weird conflation on the show of the Holocaust, like kind of being about like right. queer ideology and, you know, kind of prioritizing that over Jewish killings. And, you know, so, and then... Jeffrey Tambor got sacked for reasons that slightly remain quite fuzzy and everything just sort of imploded. Um, and the last time I read anything about uh, Jill slash Joey Soloway was they were protesting outside Netflix in L.A. saying that Dave Chappelle should be taken off the streaming channel. <laughs> I see one of the protesters. On the- <laughs> it, was, it was quite like, wow. This, I mean, she, when I first met her, she was this quite hippie out there silver lake mom um and now gone to like full-on like anti-free speech women can't wear shorts <laughs> it's like quite a journey the way she wants to dress as a a boyish type with baseball caps and t-shirts she can go to any lesbian bar in hackney i mean what on earth is wrong with people that think that they've got to transition to a different sex in order to defy sex stereotypes i mean that's what's bonkers about this ideology and that's why i'm so angry about it the girls growing up now being told that they are literally in a straitjacket that only a lifetime of medical intervention and lying to themselves in the world will get them out of. I know. And I, I mean, I, I don't know how you feel about this, Julie, but it just seems to me, this is so obviously such a regressive ideology telling women and men that we all need to be these gender stereotypes. It can only be seen as a backlash against feminism and a massive backlash against gay rights because gay equality had more or less been achieved with equal marriage. And suddenly there is this ideology saying, if you're an effeminate little boy, you're actually a girl. If you're a butch little girl, you're actually a boy. Girls all have to wear dresses. If you want to wear shorts, you literally have to transition. Like It's the two things together just seems so antithetical to all the progress that's been made over the past 30 years. Uh, I agree 100%. And, you know, I was involved in the lesbian and gay rights movement. And I was involved in feminism from the early days, from right from the beginning of the 80s. And there's no two ways about it. When Susan Faludi's book came out, I think, was it 1992? It was definitely 30 years ago plus. 
and it was called backlash and I thought then well what does she mean backlash there's always been a backlash and I think someone like Mary Daly or uh, one of the old guard wrote a really interesting paper on how ever since there's been a women's movement there's been a backlash so how can we talk in terms of backlash oh my god can we talk in terms of backlash now because you're absolutely right that when something is achieved to the point of where we have won the legislature of backlash always next to my desk (laughs) i mean she is and she's an interesting character in that essay she wrote about her father recently oh yeah so interesting (laughs) absolutely fascinating and she's a fascinating character and and yeah, but, you know, I mean, how can you possibly argue that this is a progressive ideology when it is pushing us back into a straitjacket, a cage even of sex stereotypes? And it's suggesting that there's something innate about being male or female in the gendered sense as opposed to the sex sense. Yeah, exactly. Why don't people get it? Why, why I know. Well, I saw, I have a theory that the reason young people have latched on to this so much is that it's the it's the only way left to them to rebel against their parents. You know, the parents have sort of done everything by this stage. You know, if a kid comes out to their parents as gay, chances are their parents aren't going to care that much. Like maybe if you live with some like super Christian evangelist family or something, but more or less people don't care. You know, your parents go to Glastonbury too. Your parents have taken drugs too. Your parents have done this. Your parents have done that. Your parents likely have loads of friends of different sexual orientation, ethnic background, everything. The only way to rebel against your parents is this. And this, this weird regressive, you know, quite, you know, in a lot of ways, like very Christian ideology saying girls do this, boys do that, has been a way for progressive young people to like rebel and to make their parents angry. And that's why it's kicked off. And as a result, all these progressive politicians have jumped on this bandwagon. It's become this dog that's eating its own tail at this point. Yes, and and it's peddled by the elite. It's peddled by those that really, you know, have pretty good lives in the sense that they have housing if they're lesbian or gay then they're not going to be stigmatized in their local coffee shop when they're ordering an oatmeal latte you know they're they're fine in that way and the ideology is pushed by those people but those that suffer the most are the kids in these christian communities just as you've said actually because everyone sees this as something so innovative and so forward thinking but what about those kids in for example I was talking to some young women and young men in Colorado recently for a piece that I'm researching further down the line who I met years ago when I went undercover to do gay conversion therapy it didn't work I'm here to tell you still (laughs) but they tried their best Um, and these kids are no longer sent for gay conversion therapy because there's been a huge clampdown, rightly so. It was terrible. These kids were literally told they were broken, they needed fixing, or even worse, they were exorcised. I got in touch with them thinking, I wonder, I wonder if they know anything about the kind of what I would call conversion therapy from butch camp, gender non-conforming young lesbians and gay boys into trans I call that conversion therapy not of course it is of course it is I mean I I I got I went back to them and this is a town near Columbine with where there was a yet another mass shooting all that time ago deeply Christian conservative place everybody knows each other and my informants who have since moved away they live in Denver or some other big city 
told me that, yep, it's happening. These camp uh, and butch, you know, young teenagers are being told that they must be trapped in the wrong body. So in other words, those that are picking up on the gender ideology aren't just the woke parents in Brighton or in Camden. No, 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 no. Of course not. I mean, you just look at the Iranian women's soccer team. I mean, that's kind of notoriously all trans women um, in evangelical communities. You know, better to have a trans son than a gay daughter. Um, it's very obvious that that is conversion therapy. And it drives me mad when politicians here are so stupid that they don't see that. And they see someone like you or me or a therapist telling a young person, you are not born in the wrong body. Your body can do whatever you wanted to. It can wear whatever clothes you wanted to. It can walk whatever way you wanted to. It can have any personality you wanted to. Like your body does not determine who you are. They see that as conversion therapy. They see telling a boy that he's not a girl as conversion therapy. Yeah, and yet the opposite is true. And this is why it's so utterly bonkers to suggest that giving talking therapies to kids that present at gender clinics saying that they want to stop their puberty, have surgery, identify as the opposite sex is absolutely mad. The idea that you wouldn't talk through the distress that that kid is presenting. I can't imagine a more twisted view of how to deal with children in distress. And also, also, this is the only thing that children are told they should diagnose themselves for. Like, this is the only thing where if a child says... I feel this, then everyone must immediately affirm it. Like, what, on what, what other subject is affirmative therapy promoted? Nothing, nothing, nowhere else. In other cases, all doctors are brought in and you're allowed to look at someone in a holistic sense, look at them in the round. With this, is just, this is it. There's nothing else. There could be no other factors contributing to this six-year-old boy or this 14-year-old girl insisting they're in the wrong body. They are literally in the wrong body and we must now medicalize them to change it. And this is why I think only those of us that have a critique of, of sex stereotypes, whether we identify as feminists or whether we're gay men or whether we're just actually right-minded people, should tackle this issue in terms of the solution to it. So anyone can say, look, I'm worried about my daughter being flashed at in a mixed sex toilet. I'm worried about my son going into a um, you know, sports facility um, where there's a trans woman who is a convicted sex offender. Every single person on this planet has the right to be concerned about the danger to girls and women, to children, um, about the end result of self-identification trans ideology. But I still think that feminists have got this in a sense that we've been talking about gender since the 1960s. We've been talking about the imposition of sex stereotypes for a very long time. And so why should we let it go to the Matt Walsh to decide that actually a real woman should be in the kitchen opening a pickle jar and a real man should be protecting his women and that there's real men and real women? That is going right back to the bad old days, isn't it? Well, it's, I mean, that is the same as gender ideology. That's saying men are one thing and women are the other. I mean, Matt Walsh and a trans activist are actually not that very far apart. Um, and what I find really infuriating is how so many disparate groups here are being lumped together. So you have confused small children like Susie Green's, you know, four-year-old son, Jack. Um, you have unhappy teenage girls. And then you have adults. These three groups are not the same. And I find it so deeply irresponsible and frankly criminal when adults who've transitioned, male adults who've transitioned as adults, 
insist they know, understand teenage girls better than you or me, because right. it's it's the same acronym, LGBT. And you think, I, you know, I probably know a little bit better than you what it's like to be an unhappy teenage girl and to express that unhappiness <laughs> yeah. through hating your body. And they are not all the same. And it's, you know, you, you don't want to use a you know, loaded word like recruit, but I think they are, it, there is a certain exploitation of young people's unhappiness to validate adult decisions that's going on a little bit here. Uh, absolutely. And the piece that hasn't been investigated yet, and of course it will be, and it will be the book and it will be a game changer, is Big Pharma's role in this. And I'm no conspiracy uh-huh. theorist. Uh-huh. And I don't think Big Pharma started this, but I do think Big Pharma will absolutely is hugely benefiting from the medicalization totally. of I mean, gender nonconformity. And this is why I feel like this issue is never really going to go away in America because the American Medical Association is making too much money from it. You know, you and I have both seen those videos from like Boston Children's Hospitals of doctors talking about, you know, giving mastectomies to children, um, you know, using absurd euphemisms like bottom surgery, top surgery. Um, Certainly in America, they're making too much money about it. Here we say for, you know, not the first time, thank God for the NHS, you know, it's a different situation here. Uh, But there's still the encouragement to socially transition here which as James S's has said you know the the wonderful psychologist that you know the uh, socially transition is just another word for psychologically transition and that is very very confusing for a lot of kids um if your school and your friends and your parents are all calling you by a new name and using new pronouns and holding you up as proof of their open-mindedness it how do you walk back from that I think that's extremely difficult and I I remember from another time another place another era or as we say you know different centuries same shit right. in the 70s when I was um not interested in boys wanted to have my hair cut short apart from that I mean I just looked like all the other girls I had breasts and everything and I was called a boy told I was a boy and I was very distressed at that not because I was a Christian conservative thinking that there's such a thing as innate gender expression, but because I was massively distressed at the idea that there was something wrong with me. And I was being told I was a boy from the opposite end of that spectrum Mm -hmm. of bigotry. Mm -hmm. And it's hugely distressing because, of course, we all know what happened in that story is that we fought for for the right to be able to be female, to be girls and women, and say, I'm not attracted to men, I am attracted to women, I am a lesbian or I'm a gay man. And now this seems to have done a 360 degree turn where we're back to that bullshit, but with a kind of rainbow flag attached to it. Yeah, it's become a kind of litmus test about are you on the right side of history? Sort of, you know, up there with, you know, do you love Greta Thunberg or something? It's become like this kind of liberal sort of kind of shibboleth essentially um without any thought i just think a lot of adults are sort of turning off their brains when addressing this critically um because of course there's no such thing as someone being an innately innately girl or innately boy you're just your biology and if a child grows up in an environment where they think they're not allowed to like certain toys or to do certain things and also i just think Maybe there's some parents who don't understand what children are like. I've got three children and all of and of, of both sexes and all of them have gone through phases. I remember my one of my boys saying, you know, he wants to be a girl because he wanted to wear a gold skirt like the one I was wearing. And I said, well, sweetie, I'll just get you a gold skirt. You don't need to be a girl. 
Um, and I got him one and he wore it for a bit and then forgot about it. Like, it's not a big deal. You then, you don't then commit them any more than when my three-year-old tells me she's a flamingo or she's, you know, an astronaut. I don't then, you know, drop her off at London Zoo. Like, you know, children just have different identities. They say things. Um, I've got one girl and two boys and the girl, because she wants to be like her brother sometimes, will say, I'm a boy, I'm a boy. And I'll just say, sweetie, you can be whatever you want. And then she forgets about it. And then, you know, she wants to buy a dress. Like, it it's not a big deal. If a parent, like, reacts hyperly to it, then, of course, the child will realize this is, you know, a live wire subject and will keep harping on at it. Or they'll see that the parent likes it in some way or is scared of it in some way. And they'll keep going on about it. Like if you just are like, yeah, sure, whatever. The kid will like just walk it, you know, walk away from it eventually. It's not a big deal. And and yet the goal of feminism was largely to dispel sex stereotypes and f- to allow us to live as we wish within our sex bodies. But hey, what's feminism? I mean, you, you wrote a brilliant piece um, last month about feminism didn't you oh. uh, you, you asked um you know how come I think it was when did feminism become a dirty word and that was for the Sunday Times yeah. which you are now a columnist and interviewer at Mazel Tov this is brilliant we can't wait for all of your wonderful writing Thank you. um you know it was a fantastic column and I remember thinking reading it because you got it spot on about the difference strands of thought with feminism about how feminism has been rebranded and it's been misappropriated, but also it's going really strong. And that was the great takeaway from it. There is a vibrant feminist movement. And years back, I used to say, hey, feminism is no longer a dirty word. So back in the 80s, early 80s, it was we're getting somewhere. We're no longer women's libbers burning our bras. We're no longer hairy, ugly lesbians. We're no longer just seen as wholly negative threats to society. Feminism lost its some of its stigma within some quarters. And now, oh dear, yeah, some women, it's become a dirty word again, as has lesbian. Are you going to tackle that in your writing? I mean, some of the stuff about young women and feminism. I'd love to. And I feel like this um, insistence that women need to be inclusive of everything is just insane like women are ra- are raised from a very early age to be accommodating you know i i believe that women are raised to be always hyper aware of men's sort of sadnesses or or weaknesses or fallibilities and to try to help them and to fix them like that's what women are sort of raised to do and men are really not raised like that there are some men who grow up with a fantasy of like rescuing a woman but that's about their ego whereas Women, as I'm going to sound really New York and Jewish when I say this, but as my therapist says, um, (laughs) women, a lot of women are raised to be guardians of a man's potency. And I think that's a really interesting truth. And the kind of the, the, the obsession that I see from some young women about how feminism, feminism needs to be trans inclusive i.e. inclusive of males, and to be always concerned about how male-born people are feeling. It, it feels to me like just an extension of that. And the constant, you know, discussion about how trans people are the most oppressed people on the planet. Well, you know, I I do not underestimate how hard it must be to live as a trans person. Um, on the other hand, trans murder in this country is so rare as to be, you know, non-existent whereas two women a week are murdered. 
Um, and, uh, you know, so the way that that's just kind of brushed away and ignored and the idea that, oh, because a trans woman, some people might not want a trans woman swimming in the ladies only pond in Hampstead, that makes them the most oppressed person in the world. Well, you know, (laughs) like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Get a grip. I mean, I remember that in that bastion of, 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 uh, radical feminism, the publication Vice, there was a um, a hideous um, piece written by, I can't remember who, who cares? And it was inside the Great British Turf War. <laughs> and it was a kind of cost-cutter version of the New York Times piece that had come out previous, right. how British feminism became anti-trans. Right. And I remember them critically I mean obviously they slagged us all off um but you got a special mention because you said <laughs> something particularly heinous Hadley Freeman you said mum's net is a pleasing hotbed of radical feminism I mean it really made me laugh that that is now a bigoted transphobic thing to say I know I, I, about I, narcissism I know but also I just kind of think isn't it funny like the term turf is used as a form of abuse and like it's used against me at the guardian when i was at the guardian and i think like okay first of all radical feminism i thought that was kind of cool um and also like i'm the former deputy fashion editor like if i'm seen as the radical feminist of the guardian there are some serious problems with radical feminism these days well and also there's a little known fact well i'm sure it's not little known but it might be little known amongst your legions of radical feminist fans is it was your first book called the meaning of sunglasses yeah right i know seriously that's my my great turf shame um uh, I remember, you know, this is a kind of sad story. It's true. Everyone can Google it and look it up. But I went to L.A. a bunch of years ago. Let's see, probably about 2013, 2014, um, to interview the actor then known as Ellen Page. And we had a really and Ellen Page hadn't come out as a lesbian at that point. Um, but we had a really long conversation about radical feminism. She had recently read that Susan Faludi article about Shulamith Firestone, as I had too. And we both just completely loved it. I mean, you know how much I love that piece, Julie. I gave my daughter right. the middle name Shulamith after that piece. That's her Hebrew name. Um, I, and we talked about it loads. And you people can Google this piece. And Paige was saying, you know, there needs to be more radical feminism. Like, radical feminism is fucking cool. And... Now, I know, and we sort of know what's happened to Ellen Page since. And, you know, maybe they are living their best life. But that was quite an extraordinary journey uh, to watch her, watch that person go on. <laughs> Be careful with the pronouns. To watch, to watch Ellen Page go on, going from being this quite cool, quirky, you know, lesbian who was trumpeting about Shulamith, you know, trumpeting radical feminism, Shulamith Firestone, to now, like taking photos of their body, you know, post double mastectomy. I find it, um, it's tragic. It is tragic. I find it a little sad. I mean, I hope they're happy, um, for their sake, but, but, you know, it's, I feel like there's something, there's some kind of, something was misunderstood somewhere along the way, I guess. I mean, look, I know we're not allowed to query any other people's journeys, but, just from having that long conversation and staying in touch afterwards for a bit with Paige, it's um it's been sort of discombobulating to watch what they've done to their body, I guess. I agree. And and I didn't get to meet Paige and it, I would have, I'm sure, felt felt the same kind of loss for women, really. In yeah. And, and also, like, you know, it's, it's, it wasn't her job to be 
you know, a role model in any way, that's totally cool. But, you know, when did we, ha- when, when was the last time we had a kind of young A-list lesbian and, right. you know, talking about feminism, not showing her body. And there was, I, I really thought she posted a photo of herself wearing, you know, boys swimming trunks, you know, post mastectomy, you know, showing the you know flat chest. And I thought it's so interesting because when Ellen Page was a girl, like she refused to do kind of body, you know, showing off her body, we never would have posed for a men's magazine in a swimsuit. And now look at this, like posing in a swimsuit. I don't know. There was just some, it just seemed very regressive. Like, okay, you're, you're posing, you're posting photos of yourself in a swimsuit. That is something you refused to do when you were a lesbian, a female lesbian. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't think that many could deny that there's some fetishization in this. But, but moving on, I said that, remember, not Hadley. Now, I have one <laughs> question to ask you before we end our delightful conversation. And it's been just wonderful and I could talk to you forever. But I know you've got three children, so that's not going to be possible. But, okay, here's the question that is impossible to answer, maybe. Who would you rather spend a week on an island with? They'd be called security, so don't worry. There'd be no danger. Thank God. You're unreconstructed sexist bloke that jokes about twatting his wife on a Friday night um, who yeah like is the classic kind of geezer Mm. or your so-called progressive blue-haired trans ally sex work is work who thinks it's unproblematic to talk (laughs) to porn (laughs) I mean to me they are indistinguishable I you know they're they're both about fully gender stereotypes they're both both about exploiting female sexuality um they're both about denying female individual experience I mean I think it would be almost it would be impossible for me to choose really I and and they both use and they both hate women like they they both hate women is the truth so I mean I honestly just flip a coin like it's the same thing to me it's I I, to me it's the same (laughs) and and I agree and I think sometimes there's a massive class snobbery about some of those blokes because obviously you know bankers in the city who are on huge amounts of money who've been to private school can be the sexist slobs and very often are but there's often a class snobbery and looking towards the kind of basic and reconstructed sexism whilst at the same time applauding blowjobs are real jobs sex work is work coming from these upper middle class men that say that they're on the left yeah oh with the pair of them that's what I say I'm with you I'm not going to that island I'm going to an island with feminists um (laughs) well Hadley uh, you've been an absolute treat and (laughs) what a wonderful thing to be able to do to get to talk to you like this and to be able to talk about films in particular and all of those things that I'm sure we've got in common and I'm sure there are lots of things that we don't have in common, but we're both both right. We are both right. Also, we don't need to agree on everything. We don't need to be exactly the same to be friends. Like this is, I find it really weird, this idea that people who have any differences, they can't possibly relate to each other. It's, It's so bizarre to me like you and I had very different childhoods we still want to like sit together an evening and share a bottle of wine like that's fine like it's okay remember those times when people (laughs) knew that that was okay (laughs) thank you Hadley it's it's been it's been wonderful thank you so much can't wait to read you in the Sunday Times and can't wait to read your book of course coming out in April oh thank you Julie thank you for letting me culturally appropriate your podcast (laughs) always 
I hope you enjoyed that. I could talk to Hadley all day, but I'm sure she's got better things to do. Until next time.